Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You like Crowded House? Well, then you'll love the Democrats' 2020 presidential field. 18 candidates at last count, with no clear leader of the party, a year and a half ahead of the big November rematch. What gives and where to? Hey now, stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me in Monroe Ward, downtown RVA, in the shadow of the historic Jefferson Hotel, three uh, noteworthy, I don't want to call you guys donkeys, but, you know, I guess it is metaphorically, uh, <laughs> characters that you see in the Virginia Democratic Party. Bo Cribs, he's speechwriter and comedian. He's written for Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Tim Kaine, Abigail Spamberger. He's been quoted in the Washington Post and Politico. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Anita Kazakowitz, Henrico County Democratic activist. How are you? Terrific. And rushing to the studio, just making it in time, a man in demand, Mark Cheatham, RVA community activist, host of the Cheats Movement. He speaks on behalf of himself. <laughs> you might have read his hip-hop musings in the HuffPo. Uh, he is internationally known, but I am known to rock the microphone today, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. How Mark. bad was that? That Come was on. really good. That's got, better than most. All right, Mark, you were in attendance... October, I did that event at the Historical Society here, the Virginia mm -hmm. Museum of History and Culture, Ace the Midterms, and I posed the first question to the chief congressional correspondent of CBS News, Nancy Cordes. I said, who, pray tell, is the leader of the Democratic Party weeks ahead of this historic midterm election? Fast forward now to mid-April, a year and a half in advance of this historic 2020 presidential election. I still don't know the answer. There are 18 Democrats that have started to campaign for their party's presidential nomination, but we don't have a single leader of the Democratic Party. How is that? I think the answer is going to be very similar but slightly different than what was given during that Ace the Midterms uh, show. Slightly different because the House did take back majority and we do have Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House. Would Nancy Pelosi be considered the Speaker for all the Democratic Party? I don't think so. However, you definitely look to her more than you say you look to Senator Schumer or even right now in the 20 plus people running for president for direction, if you will, or guidance, if you will. So it's slightly different than it was going into the midterms, but the as a result of the midterms, I would say Nancy Pelosi is probably the central figure that has more ability than anyone else right now to rally most members of the party. Now, with that said, that will change as soon as, what, 24 to 22, 20 declared. But once the presidential nominees whittle down and we actually have a nominee, I think you'll see a lot more leadership coming out of that camp than maybe even anyone sitting in Congress or anyone sitting in office. But as of right now, I think the closest 
thing you have to look at is the leadership of Pelosi. Anita, I have to throw you uh, some of the, I guess, 16 or 18 candidates that are listed here in the Wall Street Journal today. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, someone named Delaney with an asterisk next to the name that says Delaney is largely self-funded. Uh, I'll get to that later. Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, uh, Cory Booker, Tulsi Gabbard, Inslee, Hickenlooper, Yang, Castro, Williamson, Messam. Isn't this a guy? Like people people in Miramar, Florida is like, sure, Messam, run mayor, run for, for president. It um it is truly up for grabs right now. And I look at it and there's consternation. I mean, this controversy uh over the past few days about people in the Hillary Clinton. 2016 party kind of griping with the Bernie Sanders people. They want to put that to sleep. He says, this is my time to shine. Get out of the way, Hillary. Uh, but then there are other Democrats that are like, Bernie Sanders isn't really one of us. He's an independent from Vermont. He's he's a mercenary. He's out for himself. What do you see? I think that we're very lucky to have so many people running. I think that um, the issues that we care about are going to be spoken about more. I think there's going to be more attention. And my guess, as we always say, when Democrats vote, we win. And I believe that whoever it is, whether it's Bernie or Beto or Booker or Biden, who we aren't in, who is not in the race yet, I think the Democrats are at a good place. He's not in the race yet. Bo Cribs, Joe Biden, but he's leading many polls. This um, kind of notional Joe Biden candidate. Yeah, I mean, he's got name ID through the roof, and everybody knows who he is, and everybody associates him with the last uh, Democratic president. So I think it makes sense that he's in the lead. Uh, we'll see what happens when you know he gets thrown into the mix with the 900 other people running for president. Uh, <laughs> it's going to... I think to Mark's point earlier, I think it's going to become very clear who the leader of the party is based on who Democrats across the country collectively kind of select out of this group. It's There are a lot of different directions that the party could go in based on all the names that you just said. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how this all shakes out because, you know, I think on paper a lot of them are, you know, 85, 90 percent policy-wise the same, but the style's all, all over the map. And... Um, Unfortunately for us, uh, style wins over substance a lot of the time. 2016 is a prime example of that. So we'll see what happens. Mark Cheatham, the economist at uh, Wall Street juggernaut Goldman Sachs, they've come out with a report that says Donald Trump is more likely than not to win re-election. The incumbency and state of the economy helps his chances uh, that there is a solid shot of, of him getting uh, re-election in 2020, a slim popular vote victory, which I think is inconceivable to a lot of Democrats who look back at 2016 as the ultimate aberration. What Hillary didn't go to Wisconsin? What if? What if X Y Z X Y Z X Y Z? He had to run the table on so many states, and so many crazy things had to happen that they cannot, in their nightiest of nightmares, imagine it happening again. I think the they're onto something. I mean, I really do. I think it's going to be extremely challenging to knock an incumbent president out running for re-election, and particularly this one. And I do think that you're starting to see as we get closer and closer to the real election day, you start to see a change in regards to how people view President Trump. Um, now, with that said, is it possible for him to 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 lose this election? Sure. However, when you look at 
the numbers, especially in some of the what was the big story coming out of the 2016 election? Like, what was it called? The Rust Belt states, or that? What was the wall that was broken? Yeah, um, kind of in the in the white blue collar northern midwestern area right. of, of the country. You look at that. You look at Florida. You look at a state like Ohio and Pennsylvania, and it's going to be unless. The Democrats really do find a universal figure that they can rally behind that really brings together a coalition that President Obama bought together during like that electoral math. Then I think it's going to be really challenging for one of the kind of upstart candidates, if you will, to do that. And I do think, Robin, to bring it back to your point, that's why people look to someone like Joe Biden with a lot of name recognition and the the ideal that. Yeah, President Obama and Joe Biden won these states before. It may be more appealing for them to run again and try to and try to bring back that type of coalition um, that to date we haven't seen one particular candidate running bring. There, there's not what's the best way to say that without uh, sounding discouraged, but there's not a Barack Obama in this field. So no matter who comes out, you're going to have to gain that type of Barack Obama uh, attention. Let's let's break out some of the numbers here. I'm quoting The Hill, which said President Trump's approval rating is at 46 percent going into the impending release of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russia's election interference, according to a new poll that The Hill commissioned with Harris X. His disapproval rating is at 53 percent. Even so, we have record Low unemployment. The economy is rip-roaring. The stock market, again, I've said it again and again and again, is at a record high. And Goldman puts all of these inputs in and says that there's more than a, 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 a minuscule chance that he'll win re-election again. I do have to flog a dead donkey for one last time, if I can, to the extent <laughs> you're talking about Joe Biden. And, and Bo sure. Cribs, you've done speeches for Joe Biden. In your mind's eye, and we were there on election night. I was doing your show RVA tonight. Uh-huh. It was one night I'll never forget. What a, what a fun evening that it was. was huh? It was such an incredible evening. It right. was a surreal time. It I was. Mean, you know, um, when, when I went home and heard the returns come in. Um, do you think Biden would have won in 2016? Probably. I don't know. I mean, I, I can – I have uh, – for several months, I drove myself nuts thinking about stuff like that and uh, – I don't know. I think to your point a minute ago, 800 things had to line up and happen exactly the right time, exactly the right way for uh, Trump to win. And I think if he won once, he can certainly win again. You know, maybe that says more about me than anything else that I'm just waiting for the anvil to fall on my head again. But I think uh, I think he could do it. And I think what another thing that worries me is that because the field is so uh, huge that everyone's going to beat up on on each other and it's going to be a fractured party like it was in 2016. I was at the uh I was at the Democratic convention in Philadelphia and there it was just very clear, it was clear as day there were Bernie people and there were Hillary people and the Bernie people were still mad and it was happening in real time at the convention you could hear Bernie people uh booing and 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 trying to cause a scene. Because, I don't know if you remember, they had a real nefarious plan to, to 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 cause a literal stink about it. Yeah, I mean, yes. They they uh they It was a little more civil than that. Right. It was but I'm not, I'm not trying to dump on Bernie people, but it's it's it was just very clear at the convention that the party was very fractured and that's one thing that worries me. I do think the primaries build stronger candidates. Uh, nine times out of ten, but I also think that because there might be twenty people vying for the same uh, job, that 
whoever ends up coming out of this thing might be pretty bruised and battered at the end, which is going to give Trump a huge advantage. We all know that Bernie Sanders, as CNN Politics put it, is a fundraising juggernaut, right? He comes out, he says, I averaged $27. What is it, Bo? I'm sure you do it in person. Oh, no, I do not. I'm not going to do that on <laughs> with a microphone in my face. So, nice try, though. So, yeah, Bernie Sanders is, is a fundraising machine. I'm quoting from CNN Politics. He's raised more than $18 million in the first quarter of 2019, $6 million more than his closest competitor, California Senator Kamala Harris. He ended March with $16 million left in the bank, $4 million more than Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who finished second. Um, I got to tell you, there is this sense of revenge. And again, I'm reading this, this story from the past few days that quoted you know, Hillary strategist Neera Tandon and how she shoved one of her former staffers who then went on to become campaign manager for there's – there's kind of a rematch WrestleMania thing in here. Even though Hillary isn't running, Bernie felt wronged. He felt that the DNC apparatus and uh, the congresswoman from South Florida thwarted him and it wasn't fair. And he, he believes in his mind that he would have been a much better candidate, that he would have rode much more of the populist wave than Donald Trump did. Do you see a lot of legitimacy in his rerun? I hear what you're saying, but I have hope – that Americans are going to be smarter. I think nobody expected Trump to become president of the United States. And it was a real wake-up call when it happened. And you talk about the 800 things. It was a perfect storm. Right. And I just don't think we're going to have a perfect storm again. I just, I can't, <laughs> I have to have hope that that will not happen. I think we have to fight for it. But I just, I think we've gotten smarter, and uh, I just don't, I can't see Trump winning again. Cheats, there's been a perfect storm every time, right? It's a metaphor that we could, we could trot out forever. 2008, in the wake of the financial crisis, Wall Street melting down in the process, the Treasury departments and the transition teams having to work together. Uh, John McCain, rest in peace, wasn't the ideal candidate for that time, and uh, W left with high on popularity ratings. It was kind of a, a lame duck presidency after the 2006 election massacre. Um, but then I look back at that electoral college map. Barack Obama took North Carolina. He took Indiana. Right? Sure. He took sure. Florida. And it was something that he bottled again. And then, you know, history repeated itself in 2012. Yes, Mitt Romney wasn't the perfect candidate to appeal to evangelicals and the coalition that came out for Trump. Um, what do you have to learn from those two elections and kind of tap into the wisdom of this election? We know well, he was a juggernaut in terms of getting out the, the sure. budding millennial vote, in terms of activism, in terms of bridging everyone from limousine liberals to the African-American vote that has been truly dormant since maybe Jesse Jackson in 88. Talk to me about that. Sure. I, I think what we learned is people want to vote for someone. They don't want to vote against someone. They want to vote for someone. And I think that that was some of the challenge um, in 2016 – um, and, and I'm a huge uh, Secretary Clinton fan and obviously just was enamored with that ticket and, and really thought that that would, that would be the right leadership for the country. However, there was a large number of the country and, I mean, if we call a spade a spade, like white women, uh, working class, educated and uneducated white men. Like it was a, it was a clear th situation where even a lot of Obama people had difficulty figuring out that they wanted to vote for Secretary Clinton. And I, I never got that um, as someone that, uh, you know, kind of really uh, appreciated all the service that she had put into the country. But I do think that the end result of what you're talking about is that people want to vote for someone. They don't want to just vote against someone else. And I do think 
that and and also incumbents run from a stronger position. So everyone that kind of thinks that you know a president ending their first term going into their second term is is a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah, outside of I guess what Herbert Walker Bush is, and, and and you know throughout history it's happened, but in recent time Herbert Walker Bush is the one that Bill Clinton beat ninety two. But other than that, I mean these guys, George W. Bush won won again, Barack Obama won again, a lot of them by bigger margins, and so I do think we've got to be extremely mindful of finding a candidate that will oppose Trump that people want to vote for, because I am certain. That would you say the number was 46% of President Trump's approval rating? There's 46% and maybe some that aren't polled are going to actively vote for Donald Trump. Like those guys, if you're in that 46%, I know recently it's up. Like he was hovering right. around yeah. 39, 40. So the fact that his approval rating is going up and people are, actually. Are you surprised candidly that he's been able to keep that coalition together? Someone that we knew as kind of a New York, I never even really associated him with the Republican Party. I just thought he was a failed casino stakes. What as in my past life as a business journalist, that he has kept the um, the kind of the judicial cramming wing of the party happy. He's kept the Bible Belt happy. He's kept the Make America Great Again people, the chauvinists happy. It's a it's a strange vessel for this. Anyone can jump in. Really on quickly, I'll just say I'm not because he does it by fear and intimidation and threat to like. It is very clear that this particular president has a very strong vindictive streak and a, and, and a memory. Well, if it's not him and his memory specifically, his team has a pretty strong memory. So if you're someone that wants to break up or move away from that, look at what they did to Jeff Flake, right? Look at what they what they did to the legacy of John McCain, right? So it's one of those things where it's either you're getting on board or we're going to run over you and— I'm not surprised at all that he's held people together that way. But it sells in Kansas, Cheats. Absolutely. So does Applebee's. But I had a, a light bulb moment that, oh, this is why Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are sticking with this president. It's because they know that the alternative, they won't be able to appoint people to the Supreme Court. They won't be able to pass a tax package. And they just kind of – I mean I think that they uh, – at first kind of thought, I can't believe I have, to, I have to work with this guy. And then that quickly went away and they said, well, uh, maybe, maybe we can actually further our agenda. Um, and all they care about is, is that. All they care about is uh, power. So I think, um, I mean, you see it, you see it in the uh, Democratic Party uh, that Democrats generally hold other Democrats accountable when they are accused of things. And uh, Republicans look the other way because they know that if they did that, uh, they would be uh, uh, conceding that that they uh, might not be the the uh, beacon of freedom and the beacon of uh, individual rights that they claim to be. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Bo Cribs. We're talking Democratic crowded house. In fact, that was the soundtrack at the very top. Bo Cribs is a speechwriter and comedian. Um, he's joined by Anita Kazakowitz, Henrico County Democratic activist, and of course, our friend Mark Cheatham, host of the Cheats Movement. Uh, speaking on behalf of himself, I reiterate again. Uh, Bo, you talk about this person. Um, again, it's a peculiar phenomenon in that he's a, he's a Rorschach. He's a composite. He is something that no pollster anybody could have predicted would be the adhesive that keeps this Republican tent together. But he does. And he's giving them deliverables, right? Kneecapping China uh, with, with, I guess, banter over the wall. Um, 
back and forth with I mean, the House. Clearly, he did with the tax package. Yeah, it, but I, but yeah. my point is, it's a shape shifting rival. If you're a Democratic upstart up there, oh, suppose he's impossible you want to take to the high road. Like, suppose you want to take the high road and be Mayor Pete Buttigieg from from um, South Bend, Indiana. Uh-huh. And you want to flex your your diction and show your languages and everything. You're dealing with a guy who's gonna like you know you appear on stage with him. It's a completely different stature, completely different signaling. One is going low market. One is going high market. You you don't know the kind of opponent to put in there against. Them. I think He's you're so totally right. I think you're totally right. And I think that one thing here's a here's a phrase I don't normally start sentences with. To Donald Trump's credit, uh, uh, he treated the 2016 election and subsequent uh, months and years like a television show. I think he very much thought uh, that. A campaign is like a reality TV show, and if you can grab headlines and get people's attention, and they'll talk about that instead of more substantive, nuanced things. And who better to exploit that than a game show host himself? So I think, yeah, I think it's not a great thing for uh, the future of the republic and for democracy that that's the case. But he's done a hell of a job. Uh, being the star of his own TV show, basically every day since he announced he was running for president. But why haven't the statesmen of the Republican Party tried to stop him? I understand they're getting their agenda, but they could have got that same agenda with Mitt Romney. They could have got that but same a lot of agenda. Don't believe that, though. But they could have. The Republican platform is very well set, and they would have got judges. They would have had tax breaks, and they would, and they could have had a gentleman. I don't disagree I, with you. I think. I think this is my opinion that they were the Republican primary in 2016 uh, elected this guy beyond uh, reason or beyond expectation, and they were stuck with him. And they thought, well, we could have a statesman, or we could deal with this guy. And and yeah, I don't and, even think they have the choice, right? So, yeah, right. so uh, back to Bo's point in regards to the field that we have running. I don't. My fear isn't that they beat up on each other. My fear is that all of them talking is going to make it much easier for a President Trump with such a big microphone to basically suck all the air out of the room. And that's what he did in 2016. If you look at the the primary, you know, situation, no one else could get coverage. He sucked all the air out of the room with his ability to um, make headlines, and it it was well received in the ratings. So. It, it, it's a two-way street, right? The the 24-hour news networks cover what's going to get them ratings. And at the end of the day, his outlandish behavior in the primary field, him whether it was good or bad for democracy or society, but him mocking little Rubio is going to be a much bigger headline or calling uh, Chris Christie a name than – Real policy proposals. Well, he's already calling. What is it? Bi- he's calling Biden uh, Sleepy Joe Biden. Sleepy Joe Biden and Crazy Birdie, and it does stick Truthfully, on Twitter. I, I thought it would be. Uh, I thought they'd be a little more creative than that, but oh well. But that that that's you what know he, he goes completely crass with the Pocahontas thing and Senator Warren. That's yeah. not that's not even taboo. That's a, not a third rail, and he's completely cool with that, and that works with his party. Sure, but that that is a part of the mo. The part of the mo in regards to. Even if, you know, all the candidates that are are running against him from now and who's the one or who's any of them, can they actually get coverage, right? Can they get uh, can they get oxygen so that people take Bill Weldis? Sorry. Bill Weldis running, right? John Kasich's thinking about it again. That's what I was just going to bring up. Why can't 
the powers that be in the GOP push one of these other candidates and try to diminish Trump. Is that against the law? I mean, we have others coming out. Why not let the, again, the powers that be and the money behind it push some of these candidates rather than Trump or he is, he's popular in the Republican Party, though. He is. Yeah. He polls overwhelmingly well. The deliver, My impression is the deliverables are there. You've gotten them, uh, you know, two Supreme Court justices. Everybody's, you know, with bated breath. They're waiting what's going to happen with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Clarence Thomas is now, I believe, the longest serving Supreme Court justice. He might well could retire before 2020. There are all these pardons that are coming due. There's the fiscal relief. There's maybe packing not just the Supreme Court, but the Federal Reserve Branch. There's moving. I mean, that's. That's that's what I kind of do wonder is um, he has come in. I won't say that he's raised to the center exactly, but I am surprised. I'm blindsided, Bo, by how much he's consolidated popularity in the Republican movement. I mean, I'm blindsided, too. I uh, I think it would be wonderful if a statesman were to come forward and we could talk about real things and not throw tomatoes at each other. But that's not going to happen. And uh, I, you know, I am surprised and I'm also not surprised that the Republican Party is – uh, is so uniformly behind this guy. It's not 100%. I know plenty of Republicans that can't stand the guy, um, and some of them closed their eyes real tight and felt gross about it and then voted for Hillary Clinton. And But there weren't enough of those people, obviously. May I wax metaphorical for a moment? Please. Um, when I look at this field of candidates right now, 16 to 18 Democratic candidates. And yes, it's still early and breakthrough things do happen. Go back to Howard Dean. Go back to Obama's breakthrough. Go go back to John Kerry, who was left for dead in 2004 and came back. But I'm reminded of visiting Manhattan for the first time as a little kid in the fifth grade. Our uh, dearly departed teacher, Mr. Pakula, took us to New York. I'm from Miami. We took the Amtrak train all the way up to New York. When we got outside of Penn Station, one of the first things we saw before we boarded the tour bus was a big breakdancing circle. And... Anyway, this is going somewhere. Believe me, it really is. I trust you. 18 people or so kind of roughly saying, look at my moves is better than the last guy. Look at my moves is better than the last guy. I'm going to break my neck for tips. It's better than the last guy. When I see a guy like Mayor Pete Buttigieg talk in Norwegian a couple of weeks ago, talk after the Notre Dame cathedral fire and, and offer his condolences in French. In beautiful, I'm, fluent I French. Mean, and now, you know, here he is. In the, <laughs> the Onion is already saying that he's talking to a... I love this headline in The Onion. He goes, Pete Buttigieg stunts campaign crowd by speaking to manufacturing robots in fluent binary. <laughs> it shows him talking to one, this And that's what it is right now. No, everybody's like begging for attention. Cory Booker loves attention. Nobody kind of remembers it. Senator Warren loves attention. Kamala Harris, she was the great shiny object during the Kavanaugh hearings. And the well, I think if you run for president, you like attention. Let's just I, I, let's just have a blanket statement <laughs> there. That see, if is, there, is, there, is there anybody kind of clamoring for, is there like a Kirsten Gillibrand brush fire somewhere? I don't mean it offensively. Like, this is really diluted. And I'm surprised even at this point that nothing is congealed. Nothing is coalesced. You're talking about a very palpable enemy in Donald Trump and a person who will egg on people to kind of come in, you know, crazy Bernie and sleepy eyed Joe and, and various candidates. And so what is the party doing? And if you want to crystallize that down to a conversation, Pete Buttigieg, is the country ready to vote for a smart guy and a, a, a person, an openly gay mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who I believe, by the way, would not even win his own state. I mean, I, 
if if you had said to me in 2006 we'd vote for a guy named Barack Hussein Obama, I would have thought you were nuts. So uh, stranger things have happened. These are not normal times, uh, and we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with an opponent that is totally completely unprecedented. So you know, on paper it sounds crazy that a 37 year old openly gay man, uh, mayor of a m- small college town in the Midwest, to become president. This is not an endorsement, but he's a very impressive guy. And to you know, the the on paper the thought of that is nuts. But the thought of a reality TV host beating uh, governors and senators and, and statesmen was also nuts. So, stranger things have happened. Anita, your daughter and grandson uh, this week went to see Beto O'Rourke talk in Henrico County. Um, the uh, the upstart from Texas who very nearly seated the overwhelmingly popular Ted Cruz, the senator there last year, came close and then parlayed that into running for national office. The same thing that I said to, to Bo, I'm not sure he could win Texas in the Electoral College, but he might have appeal across the board to millennials. What did you hear? Well, I th- I'm not sure any Democrat can win Texas, so I don't know that that's a fair assumption to say because Beto didn't beat Ted Cruz that he couldn't become president. Um, I'm not endorsing Beto either, although my 16-year-old grandson thinks he's awesome. <laughs> but, of course, he can't vote. Um, I I don't – I think you – I don't know that Beto could win um, Texas. But, again, I, I don't know that you can go by one state that's red – that a blue, you can expect someone blue to win. I, Indiana, isn't that where Mike Pence is from? I mean, you know, the state is different all throughout. And Donald Trump is, is Upper East Side, New York, and, and Queens, you know, we right. have to remember. <laughs> yes, I, Donald Trump did lose New York. I, I was just going to say, I grew up in the Northeast, and Donald Trump was thought of as a clown. I mean, you know, wait, years and years ago, he was a celebrity, but he was thought of as a clown, and most New Yorkers and New Jersey people did not vote for him, even though he originally was a Democrat. That's right. He did give to Hillary in 2008, I believe. I mean, that's all forgotten by now. And his daughter is a Democrat. Let me ask you, um, Anita Kazakowicz, do you suspect, do you believe that, you know, how much of Hillary was just kind of inchoate unpopularity, people who were hell-bent against Hillary, and how much of it, if you could run a pure regression analysis and look into people's hearts and minds, was because she was a woman? And they were not going to vote for a woman. In fact, it, it repelled them and they were going to vote for anything but the woman. I think that played a tremendous role. So do you think the Democratic Party is ready to elect a woman? I, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid of that. Um, you have Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Amy Klobuchar. And they're all so good. I mean, not all, but they have so much to offer. And, you know, as Cheatham said, Hillary had so much going for her. I always said when I grow up, I want to be Hillary Clinton. She's bright. She's has grace. I just I think that the country wasn't ready for a woman. But again, I didn't think the country was ready for Barack Hussein Obama. Sure. And I, he I, won. Can a, I can think of one woman that I think right now um, that I think would really put the country electorally in a uh, – and a phenomenon and would, I think, easily win the president of the United States. And unfortunately, that particular woman is not going to run for president and she's not running for president right now. And that woman is also not Oprah. 
Right. But I do think it's Michelle Obama. Mich- Michelle Obama. I think Michelle Obama yeah. is yeah. the one woman uh, in the field that would actually do what – it's kind of interesting in my mind. But I do think like when you think of the power of Oprah maybe a decade ago, I think Michelle Obama actually holds a lot of that power in, the, in those types of coalitions. Um, and I think she's proven uh, obviously through the last kind of – through the President Obama's presidency and the, what she's done over the last eight years and since she's left office, I think she's actually proven to be, uh, you know, that 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 – that she has that fight in her to to actually take it to Donald Trump. One of the things that um, I fear when we talk about uh, people like Mayor Pete or in, the, one, one of the things I fear about that is a lot of the candidates we're talking about are actually going to play right into the lowest common denominator of a Donald Trump strategy to win, right? So if you if you get someone like a Mayor Pete that's you know, super intellectual, speaking to a region, for somehow the reality TV show entertainer is going to make that look at that that positive of being, you know, speaking multiple languages and being so intelligent. It's going to make it in the lowest common denominator of politics. Like, he can't relate to you. Do you speak Norwegian? Like, he's going to make all of those positive He's an elite. You right, know, yeah. a, into a negative. And right. I bet you, I, I don't think Mayor Pete's going to come out of this as much as, um, he'll, he'll boost his profile, but I do think, you know, they would be chomping at the bit to run against someone that they really could, you know, separate as an elitist or, 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 or any, any way their strategy is going to be divide and conquer. It always, it always has been. So the more ways that they can figure out how to divide, the more ways that they separate, uh, candidates from the electorate, the, the better it is for them to do so. I mean, if I was working for them, I'd do that myself. Bo, the New York Times is writing this week about... The failing New York Times? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Quote, stop Sanders. Democrats are agonizing over his momentum. We're talking about Bernie Sanders, who's running again. And I'm quoting... How some Democrats are beginning to ask, do they thwart a 70-something candidate from outside the party structure who is immune to intimidation or incentive and wields support from an unwavering base without simply reinforcing his, quote, the establishment is out to get me, quote, message. The same grievance Mr. Trump used to great effect. But stopping Mr. Sanders, or at least preventing a contentious convention, could prove difficult for Democrats. This is a guy who just doesn't care. I mean, you know, it's the same thing with Ralph Nader at the turn of the century. What do I have to lose? We don't speak Ralph Nader's name in my home. Stop Uh, it. (laughs) uh, No, I, I, uh, yeah, it's going to be hard. And and, uh, facts are facts. Bernie Sanders is ridiculously popular. He is, right now, Biden hadn't announced, he's the front runner, I would say. He is, he is leading the polls of all the declared candidates. You just said he raised more money than anybody else. It's his to lose right now. It's super early, but I truly think it's his to lose. And so we will see uh, if and how. Normally what happens in a primary is people drop out and they kind of decide who they don't want to be president. And they endorse people to kind of gang up on the on the leader. So uh, we'll see if that happens. I, I don't know. I mean, is he the leader of the Democratic Party right now? I want to know. He's not a Democrat. <laughs> I don't know. Uh if he uh, asked me in a year if he uh, wins in Iowa and if, and if he wins the uh, the nomination, then yeah, he he absolutely is. But uh, I don't know. What are the lessons that I mean? Where are the Obama people right now? Because so much of the Trump presidency is built on dismantling the gains of the Obama administration. If it was a policy or if it is edict, Cuba um, trade, uh, Obamacare, take it down. It's kind of the antipodal policy making agenda to Barack Obama. You would think at some point, and yes, he's been criticized for being 
a bit too aloof and professorial and too civil, that he would want to come back and deploy his troops who masterminded 2008 and 2012 and remind the party what it did to win. But I, I think you do see that in a way. I mean, you see, I mean, let's not ignore the fact that Democrats took back the House and had a ton of amazing candidates all over the country. And I do think a lot I know personally. They lost seats in the Senate, which I know is not unusual, but it's made it even harder to block judicial appointments now. Right. But I, I know a lot of folks that were working on elections that won. Uh, at the midterm election and working with amazing House candidates that won and working on amazing Senate races that may have fallen short if you were looking or governor's races if you're looking at Andrew Gillum. I know, and I know Mark, Abram. but this is now the Electoral College firewall. Sure. Right. Let's not forget. Was it was it Trump had three, th- three million fewer votes than Hillary, three million plus, even if they were concentrated in California, but they could still plausibly run that table again. Yeah, but he, I, I do think we should really put in perspective how big of a house win like and yeah, and agreed. down and down and t- governor's mansions and down down ticket like if you actually look so it was a very interesting kind of read it was it was um you know, kind of the aging of the midterm elections if you will where on election night the day after election night president trump comes out and says hey man we had a really great night and slow, slowly, day by day, week by week, we you just kept seeing house, you know, house situations win or governor's mansions t- turn over. And I do think if you look at the midterms now and in perspective, it was a pretty great night for Democrats outside of the outside of the Senate situation, which we knew was going to be a long shot going in. So it's not like there was higher expectations than we met in the midterms. To your point in regards to. Where are these, you know, staffers, you know, the, the handful that aren't working at Cricket Media are actually, out, <laughs> right, they're, they're out in the country kind of you know, shepherding some of these amazing races. And, you know, just to be frank, again, I think you said we have 16 to 18 people running for president. All of them have staffs. And we've got a number of people, really talented people, holding out to figure out how best they can uh, impact, uh, the you know, the 2020 election. So I do think that those teams and those members are really deployed out in the country. And I do think that we, you know, Democrats in general have a really, really good opportunity if we can figure out how to get some of the, uh, how, how, how to get those messages out, how we can get some of that momentum. And it's going to be, I, I'm, I guess, very conscious that how difficult that's going to be, how difficult it's going to be to be able to crack through all of the primary season, then take on a rested incumbent president that's going to, you know, that doesn't have a playbook and can do and say whatever they want. And controversy helps this guy. So no matter how absurd he gets, it helps change the, you know, it's the look over here. I've got a new I've got a new issue that you have to cover. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking crowded house, namely the Democratic Party uh, ahead of the 2020 election. There are 16 to 18 candidates that are um, biting at what's on the table right now, uh, not to be confused with Biden. Uh, we are joined in the studio. You were listening to Mark Cheatham. He is host of the Cheats Movement podcast. You've read his musings in the Huffington Post. Uh, speechwriter and comedian Bo Cribs and Anita Kazakowitz, Henrico County Democratic activist. Let's shift to policy, Anita. Is there something that stands out 
out there that is going to, from a policy front, really bring together this fabled coalition of millennials, minority voters, immigrants, uh, wealthier kind of soccer moms, limousine liberals, Hollywood liberals, uh, coastal elites. I don't know the the the, the fabled kind of you know. Um, Hispanic uh, swing state voter in Florida and Arizona, is there something that people can really rally around that someone can enunciate? There should be if there isn't, and I would say it's health care. I don't understand if Republicans don't get sick or don't have pre-existing conditions. It just is absolutely amazing to me how people don't seem to understand what one accident, one sickness can do. And we know it's not only Democrats who get sick. I would think health care would be the one rallying issue that everybody should be able to understand. We did see, though, some of the reddest states opt out of, of you know, most vociferously out of the Obamacare mandates and, and people who needed this the most, who were impoverished. So, there isn't necessarily a pure correlation between kind of poverty and need and needs-based. That's what I'm saying. It, I don't understand that worldview, which is very different than mine, because people get sick. Um, Virginia just expanded Medicaid, and 400,000 people now are going to get healthy. I don't know whether it was Buttigieg or who said it, but part of freedom is being healthy. If you're not healthy, you're not free to go to work. You're not free to contribute. I, I think that but you don't we, exactly get the impression that there is a national coalescence around no healthcare. I will but say there should be. <laughs> there's evidence to support that uh, healthcare is a motivating factor for people, and it's the 2018 midterm elections. Because I'm grossly oversimplifying this now, but uh, many Democrats ran on the platform of I'm going to protect Obamacare and many Republicans ran on the platform of we're going to rip it apart. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was one of, if not the biggest uh, gain in the House for uh, an opposing party to, to the president in the midterms in a very, very long time. Uh, so evidence supports the idea that uh, health care is a motivating factor for people in red states, blue states, all across the board. What about the Supreme Court justice issue? I mean, that was pretty bare knuckle. That got people riled up about the moment, and then the moment passed. Everybody said Susan Collins is going to be finished. She's dead for casting one of the deciding votes, and then that that worry really dissipated. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. With all policy issues, it it is a challenge to keep sustained momentum, right? So, and you you were mentioning the Supreme Court. The thing I think of is as firearms and mass shootings, right? So. No one could have fathomed after Parkland, uh, even you know before Parkland, if it was Sandy Hook, no one could fathom that we would lose energy around uh, some type of measurable uh, firearms control type situation, and we have, unfortunately. You said the you know Kavanaugh hearings and the energy that goes around the Supreme Court. There, the the thing about this particular White House is that if it's not family detention, uh, it's the wall. If it's not the wall, it's you know, it's always something else that always sucks the, you know, it makes it very hard to pin down uh, attention for any lasting situation. They look at what's happened even right now as we talk about the Mueller report, right? So before the Mueller report uh, is completed, 
everybody's like everybody is waiting with high bated breath about what could happen post Mueller report. And now it's almost like you know, yeah, they, people want to see the full report, but they know that that ball game's pretty much over, right? So I do think there are policy issues. Going back to what you said about healthcare, I do think it's a it's a national issue that could define the you know the twenty twenty election in many ways. And look no further than we are in the city of Richmond, but look at one of the upstarts here in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger, and the seventh congressional in Virginia would not have even gotten to the race to run if it wasn't for healthcare. She right. said that repeatedly, right. and she uh, obviously beat an incumbent that beat uh, Eric Kanner basically running on healthcare and supporting your healthcare. And I do think you saw that more and more across the country in 2018, that I think healthcare is going to be a big issue. I think as long as no one in Congress really gets extremely serious about immigration reform, um, I think that's going to be a huge issue because, you know, that type of narrative, those types of images of family separation at the border and people getting, you know, racked up in ICE custody or people dying or children dying at the border uh, in these detention camps, those types of things will translate. And so I would say healthcare. I would say something needs to be done in regards to uh, a a comprehensive immigration policy. And then I think you'll start to see other things, uh, whether it's um, firearms or the border wall. I mean, you're going to see a bunch of things come up. The, The question is, will they get enough coverage more than, you know, President Trump makes fun of MSNBC's analyst, Andrea Mitchell. Like that's that, you know, they're going to do 20 to 25 day line, uh, day long segments over who President Trump is making fun of or what is he saying on Twitter if he's going after the congressman, uh, you know, like if he does those types of things, that is going to suck away. The fact that Elizabeth Warren has a really strong policy proposal or if Kamala Harris has a really strong policy, like that doesn't sell nearly as much as what President Trump's figured out is the reality show entertainment baiting. You've all mentioned Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi as kind of the standard bearers uh, for the Democrats right now. But we cannot ignore the phenom that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, nearly four million Twitter followers out of nowhere. A little more than a year ago, she was working at a bar in lower Manhattan and came out of nowhere and upset was it joe crowley yeah yes. right it was who was two or three in line to become speaker of the house but this also poses a generational problem and a, and a messaging problem for the party because you have someone like her and ilhan omar and rashida talib constantly getting vilified every night on fox news and every time i see um uh, you know I, I see congresswoman omar up there and she's been getting death threats um I wonder how irresistible this much be to the most Machiavellian elements in the Republican Army because they wouldn't want her to step down, no matter how controversial her comments, because it's a very useful person to vilify. It's, you know, and I'm quoting here in uh, New York Magazine, who is quoting um, strategist David Frum. He said, Trump wishes to make Omar the face of the Democratic Party heading into the 2020 elections, and now he has provoked Democrats to comply. He went on to describe the congresswoman's so-called recklessness as a liability for a party that wants to win national elections and govern the country. He insisted that the GOP's characterization about her remarks about Islamophobia was correct, that she was, in effect, exonerating the 9-11 hijackers. He deployed the now standard canard that Omar speaks disparagingly about Jews, even though a more precise assessment is that she speaks disparagingly about the Israeli government and its American lobbyists. Anyway, this is all a very useful distraction if you are kind of the agitprop wing of the party. Like, and, and you have noticed that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi haven't exactly been uh, 
you know, moving mountains, if you will, to defend these insurgents in the House. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the president and his supporters are subtle with their racism and Islamophobia. Uh, right now, they're not being very subtle. It's very clear what they're trying to do. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out why they're singling out Omar and Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez. It's not hard. Um, and it ain't because they're young. Uh, but I don't think it is going to change many people's opinions other than his base. I think most people who are not his base are are not going to be affected by the nonsense he spews. You gave a, a statistic earlier, Robin, about Trump's approval rating. In the many days that he's been president, his approval rating has never been a majority. He has never reached 51%. So I think we forget that his 46% base is really a small number when you think about it. I mean— But again, in the electoral math, it's enough to pull it off. We've seen it before, as statistically improbable as it was. Yes, on the— but. Again, so maybe it's time to get rid of the economy. And the economy has almost, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe we need to get rid of the electoral college. He he does have deliverables in his defense, and this is this is the same thing. We could be talking about. This is why people said when we had Abigail Spamberger on the show a year and a half ago, when she was an unlikely person to unseat, you know, Dave Bratt and the first Democrat to do it. I think since 1971. There's only so much you can, you know, learn from the bright blue wing of the party. You can't really scale the lesson of an AOC to a central Virginia or to uh, people who are trying to unseat lifelong Republicans in Indiana or in Florida. It's it's very peculiar about playing the center. I think, though, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't know how many people like the ones you just described that live in the 7th District of Virginia or moderate Republicans that live in swing states. I don't know how many votes are going to be changed by a congresswoman from the Bronx uh, for president, I mean. Uh, so just say, for sake of the argument, that uh, Kamala Harris is the nominee. I don't know how many people are going to change their vote for Kamala Harris because AOC uh, live streams her uh, building Ikea furniture from her apartment. <laughs> I don't know how many people are going to change their vote. People are going to get mad about it. Uh, people are going <laughs> to think it's, think it's uh, silly and it shows that she doesn't know what she's talking about and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I don't know how many people are actually going to change their vote because of it. Mm. I, I think the, the the interesting part is I don't I don't think you have to change. Uh, like so, for example, AOC works in the Bronx. You're you're not going to move that to the seventh district of Henrico. But what you can do is you can see what works uh, in regards to social media. You can see what works in regards to engagement with their community. And certain candidates that may fit certain districts in different parts of the country can use what works um, and apply that to their district and and apply it to their style. And I think it does translate. One of the things that I think is a gross possibly miscalculation by the by the current administration is they think they're punching down when they when they punch at Congresswoman Omar or AOC or, uh, you know, Congresswoman Presley. But what I think they're going to find out is that they're punching at some formidable opponents. And these people have strategies. These leaders have strategies that will connect to a different crop of people that they've never dealt with. But what is the phenomenon? It's like not it's the opposite of Pareto optimal. Or if you saw a beautiful mind where the guys are are at Princeton, this is a throwback to the time of, of Nash and they're plotting in the cafeteria like all of us can win when 
you punch down at a at a at an AOC or an Ilhan Omar, that only strengthens your case with your base and throws red meat to her base. It just it just makes both sides double down. There's or, there's or, precious or, few. They're just dregs in the I middle. I think the other thing that it does that it, it turns a lot of people off to the process. So for example, it's it's pretty clear that it wasn't as much that Donald Trump ultimately Donald Trump you know, one more states than Hillary Clinton. But it, it was much more because the uh, base that voted for Obama did not vote in the same measurables right. for Hillary Clinton. So, right. again, I think what happens, what the fear is, is if you put – if you make the so the environment so toxic that people want to just remove themselves from the process. And I think when you do that, that type of division is what gets somebody with a 46 percent approval rating to win. So that's – Going back to the original point, and when you look at politics in general, is that you really want to be voting for someone. Like you really want to have someone that you can rally behind and, and, and really feel not only excited to pull the lever for, but you're going to get five to ten of your friends to come pull the lever for that same person. And I do think as a end result of 2018, you saw some of that with some of these races that you're talking about, the midterms and all the women in white that you saw at the State of the Union. I know – as a Democrat that lives in the Southern District, how excited I was to get people to come vote for Abby. And so that's... Abby Spamberger you're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I do think you're going to... that That's what we need. And that's why the process that we're seeing right now is so critical because you're going to have to whittle down, you know, ultimately, I'm assuming it's going to be about 24 candidates down to one person. And at the end of that, the challenge is, just like Bo said, the challenge is that they're, they don't hate each other at the end of the day. Like, they're really going to be excited to to run against this administration and really bring uh, not only issues, but some of that flair that some of these new, uh, you know, newly elected congresspeople bring. I think that's going to be the combination to get you to victory in many ways. I think the media really wants there to be this Democrats in disarray story, and I don't really think it exists all that much. Uh one thing I've noticed about a lot of the presidential candidates is many of them were senators, many of them worked together. Um, when they cross paths in Iowa or New Hampshire on the campaign trail or when they announce they're running, I've noticed a lot of the uh, Senate candidates for president uh, are very uh, uh, openly welcoming them to the race and talking about how how they're friends and talking about how wonderful they are. And I think that's a byproduct of the bad blood of 2016 uh, between the Bernie folks and the Hillary folks. But I think I've been really – I've really appreciated that. Uh, and it might just be lip service. They might just be trying to do it to play nice. But, um, you know, to have Gillibrand say, Cory Booker's a wonderful person and he'd be a great president. Um, we just uh, disagree on a handful of things. I think that's great. And I don't think that there's a Democrats in disarray. Uh, narrative, even if AOC gets a bunch of headlines and Nancy Pelosi uh, pushes back on her in public sometimes. Mm. Oh, I agree 100 percent. And I also think the four of us sitting here are paying a lot of attention. Many people pay no attention. You know, I think it was Jay Leno used to go out on the street, and I'm sure it was all staged. And he would ask somebody, who's the vice president? And they didn't know. 
As I said, I think Jay Leno was staged, but I bet if you walked out on Franklin Street and asked 25 people, name five people running for president from the Democratic Party, they wouldn't be able to come up with five people. I'm going to hold all your hands to the fire in the few minutes that we have left. Mark Cheatham predictions. Give me two names. Ticket. Jeez. Do it. Oh my gosh! See, this is this, this is, is the challenge. I do think. All right, so I'll, I'll tell you my top tier, if that's yeah. if you will. Um, I think Warren's in the top tier. I think Sanders is in the top tier. I think Harris is in the top tier. And when Biden gets in, I think he'll be in the top tier. Way to prevaricate, Bo Cribs. Uh, I'm really hopeful that the ticket will be the two people with the most complicated names. So the uh, bumper stickers will say Hickenlooper, Buttigieg, uh, and really just confuse people. They'll 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 think it was some sort of a printing error. That's my hope. I don't know. I have I have no idea who's going to. Uh, I think Mark's uh, top tier is is correct. Uh, I think Harris is really formidable, and I think you can't obviously ignore Bernie Sanders, and, and you can't ignore um, Joe Biden's decades of service. Uh, so I think I think those are your kind of top three, and I think Pete Buttigieg. Uh, desperately wants to uh, debate Mike Pence as the vice presidential candidate. He desperately wants to sit across that table from Mike Pence, and that would be a lot of fun to watch. Mm. I could see a Kamala and Buttigieg. Wait, a Kamala Buttigieg ticket? Yes. I, as, Woman of color with an openly gay man. Yeah, and um, I think that, well, when you put it that way, I don't know. <laughs> It's hard. I may have to take that back, but um, are you surprised that Biden hasn't announced yet? Anyone? No, I mean, I, he doesn't have to do all the legwork that, for example, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, has to, has to do to get his name out there and get name ID and raise money. He already has all those things in place. Uh, if and when he announces. and the quick ancillary question, cheats in closing is when and if he does announce, do Obama do the Obamas endorse him? Reflexively, I think it's actually, believe it or not, a more complicated question than, than it's not a flat out yes or no. I mean, I think it's going to be very, I think they'll be very deliberate and I think they'll make a look at the field. And I do think they have a lot of uh, love and admiration for Joe Biden. However, I think it would be extremely difficult with uh, Booker and Harris and uh, a bunch of folks in the race to kind of plant their flag. I, it is very un-Obama-like for them while there is a wide field with people that he is extremely friendly with and has known all his life. That's his beer drinking buddy, man. I think I think I it's, don't think it'll, I think I it's a more complicated question. Now, I will tell you this. If it gets down between uh, Bernie Sanders and maybe one other person <laughs> or two other people, then I could easily see uh, President Obama pushing his thumb on the scale against Sanders, possibly. Hold these good thoughts because we're going to have you back. That's Mark Cheatham. He was joined by Bo Cribs and Anita Kazakowicz, our inaugural Democratic Roundtable. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having You're us. You're welcome. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this fine broadcast on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News on NPR.org and on the NPR One app, which I love. Of course, you could subscribe on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are inclusive big tenters who like to caucus with all sorts of guests. 270 kilobits per second to win. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Thanks.